This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Martha McCallum, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Hamas is going to release more Israeli hostages in an extended ceasefire in Gaza, a relief to their families. It's been a tremendous amount of, of joy right now, but we still, like I said, have many more we need to bring back home and we will not rest and we will not stop till the last one of those hostages are back home with the loved ones. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The legal system for most of an entire state has been taken offline due to a cyber attack as hospitals, schools and local governments are all on the receiving end of an increase in ransomware attacks. There are groups that have been out there that the attacks you're talking about against hospitals and municipalities They tend to be more organized criminally, and they're looking for money. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. For a fifth day in a row, there's no war in Gaza. The ceasefire extended another 48 hours, so more Israelis kidnapped by Hamas and last month's terror attack can be set free. Our hostages are not lost. We won't sit around and hope they're found. We will rescue our hostages at all costs. Israeli Defense Forces Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. The plan is for 20 more hostages to be released in this extended pause in fighting. In a swap that continues the agreement to free three Palestinian prisoners held in Israel for each hostage. Hamas let 50 go in the first four days of the ceasefire, including this woman's three grandchildren. We hug them a lot, again and again and again. We cry a lot. We laugh a lot. Intense feelings many other families of hostages are sharing. Yes, it's been a uh, part of a roller coaster of emotion uh, since the October 7th. Uh, started with the uh, complete shock and and disbelief that we're uh, in this horrible situation. Dory Roberts is an Israeli-American who had three relatives in the first group of hostages set free last Friday. Dorona Sher and her two daughters, uh, Raz and Aviva, three years old and five years old, was released as the first group came out of the Gaza Strip back to Israel. And the evidence are keep coming and piling up as more and more and more joining in the past few days uh, to that to complete this picture of like how they were carried and was held captive in those tunnels. Uh, the last I heard uh, just from a conversation with my family earlier was uh, they're talking about very little amount of food supplies that is very minimal to tin cans of, of chickpeas and dry bread, water, um, and a little bit of sleep aid pills that were given to them that I had to share between one pill between like five people. Yeah. The strengths of the people there were like 
incredible trying to lift those kids and and the babies and and really hold them close and and making sure that they are safe okay under those in, incredible conditions it's obviously horrifying to even think about take us back to friday when you learn that your relatives were among the first to be released in this deal i have personally waited till i actually got the final word from the israeli government and the idf that they finally crossed the border and they were able to match the names on the list to the people in the first group. Only then I was able to finally take a moment and 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 be very, very thankful and all the emotions and everything just kind of came out. My heart started beating really fast, kind of like from my excitement. That followed by like a huge amount of messages from all around the world, relatives, family, friends, community members, leaders, who reached out saying they're very relieved. So it kind of gave me the impression that we celebrated as a nation, as, as, as a big community, very wide spread community around the world. We were able to finally breathe. And I'm very, very excited that we've seen so far a pretty consistent flow of people coming back from, from the Gaza Strip back to us. And it's been a tremendous amount of, of joy right now, but we still, like I said, have many more we need to bring back home and we will not rest and we will not stop till the last one of those hostages are back home with the loved ones. It's it's, it's got to be hard to even process. Have you spoken to your cousin? I know the girls are very young. Have you spoken? I have spoken to her husband. I've spoken to her sister. Uh, they're giving me updates a little bit at a time of what they can say. Um, this is where I'm, I'm getting the news from. We are there's a close family. We decide to give them the respect and try to really give them the space to be together. We still have um, our, over 150 people that are held hostages, the men amongst them, the soldiers. I have still two family members I consider as a family, which is my uh, late aunt Efrat Cuts partner for the past 20 years. Gadi Moses is held. He's 79 years old. He's an incredible, strong person, a, a man of the land, really. Like, he speaks almost fluent Arabic, and he's been held since October 7th. His ex-wife was released a couple of days ago as well. So I'm very excited and thrilled for his close family and loved ones. But we're still waiting for his return, the same as uh, Ravid Katz. Uh, he's a half-cousin of mine. I remember him. Since I was a child, and we spent many summers together, um, precious memories from my childhood. Uh, he was part of it. So he is a 51 years old. He's got three kids and a six months years old baby at home waiting for his return. Uh, he was part of the emergency team response from near Oz, from the kibbutz near Oz, that were assigned to hold the kibbutz safe. Uh, and they faced uh, about 250 militants terrorists from the Hamas who attacked and penetrated the kibbutz that day and destroyed everything in their path. Yeah. Uh, take, and take obviously him. they took him hostage. You're, you you referenced your aunt. She did not survive this, correct? That is correct. She was uh, she was seen, her life, I guess her last moment alive were captured on the Hamas TikTok account where they released that video Um and you could see her uh, protecting with her body, uh, her granddaughters, and alongside with uh, her daughter. And they were just uh, being carried on that vehicle to towards the Gaza Strip. 
and along the the road somewhere there um they murdered her and just left her uh body at the border and as it continued towards gaza strip i'm not sure exactly what happened i'm sure we'll find out sooner now that we have doron back with us um she was buried temporarily buried uh by my mother's side that's her sister um in my kibbutz in kibbutz ravadim where uh i buried my own mother about only three and a half months ago and that's the last time that i met my aunt efrat when she was there at the funeral obviously you're here in the u.s in texas you've seen all of the protests many of them pro-palestinian free palestine um blaming israel some for causing the terror attack with the way they've uh, handled Gaza in recent, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. What have you thought about all that? What we saw here in the U.S. is a huge spike in anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, led by groups that got united with Black Lives Matters. It's a very confusing time for us here in the U.S. We were thought we were safe. We thought that we were understanding and we thought that we were um, so far apart from the Holocaust. But here we are again trying to explain and educate uh, a generation because you can see there is a generational gap in there that those are young people who get their information from social media, from TikTok and, and from Facebook and from Instagram about what is happening in the region. And they are picking the underdog, per se, but not understanding a 75 years of conflict and history yeah. of what happened in that region before. Yeah, but, then they're, but they're seeing, obviously, the reports of thousands of deaths in Gaza, Palestinian civilians killed in the Israeli attacks that have been on hold now since uh, last week. So they're reacting to that and, and, and claiming that Israel's essentially doing the same thing and that there's a genocide going on in Gaza that has to be very hard for you. Yeah, it, it is very hard. And again, we have to stick to the facts. So like on October 6th, there was a ceasefire. On October 5th, there was a ceasefire. We did not choose to start this war. The Hamas and the Islamic Jihad infiltrate Israel with another cyber attack and support by Iran that was there for years. There was a lot of malfunction on the Israeli side, on the military and security side. We'll get to those questions down the road and figure out what happened, like we did back in Yom Kippur War with the Shamgar Committee, and we will get those answers. But we have to remember, we did not instigate, we did not start this fire, we did not start this war. We were reacting to the most deadliest day in the history of the Jewish nation since the Holocaust. And that's what we reacting for. We said, like, we will not be, we will not sit back and let the Hamas control the Gaza anymore. We will have to dismantle them from power, from politics, from military ability. And hopefully we'll be able to set Palestine free again from the Hamas, not from Israel, because Israel pulled out from uh from the gaza strip in 2005 and then 2014 we do not have a hold of the palestine of palestine territory in gaza and they're saying like hey it's an open air jail i was like but open air jail we still send electricity gas natural gas uh supplies and give them permits to come and work in israel and get educated so there's there's you know for those say like there's a genocide 
we said like there is no genocide because we're not under uh, uh, ethnical cleansing. We're not under the Palestinian as a whole. We're fighting the Hamas. The Hamas embedded themselves with civil civil uh, institutes, hospitals, uh, mosques, churches, schools, and civilian houses. So we have to go out there and really, really treat it like a cancer. And what happened when you treat a cancer? You kill the good stuff as well alongside, but you eventually get rid of the bad cells. And that's what we're after. You will go back to Israel at some point, right? You're going to want to see your family, the girls and all that. But when do you think you could go? I'm planning a trip, uh, hopefully early next year, um, after the holidays, um, to get reunited with my family, uh, to go and, and, and mourn and grieve the, the loss of, of my aunt and, uh, all the loved ones we lost on October 7th. Even if the and, war is still going on? I mean, it's paused now, but if, assuming that it's back on at some point? Even if the war is still going on, I just talked to um, my brothers and sisters, and they say it, it's been pretty quiet, but now we're in a ceasefire. It's been pretty quiet, and it feels like it's safe. Kids are back to school in Israel. Um, life is still hard. There's still a lot of people in reserves, and so it's the economy is still struggling. But I hope that by... Early next year, um, we will see a, a different outcome, and, and the war will be hopefully concluded this conflict, and people will be able to sit down on the negotiation tables and we'll figure out the future of Gaza Strip. Dory Roberts, congratulations on your family members who've been released. We wish you the best on those still held, and our condolences to the loss of your aunt from the attack back in October. And we thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today on your show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. Attorneys in most of Kansas haven't been able to file documents online since October 12th. But only last week did the Kansas State Judiciary confirm the security incident behind the disruption was actually what they called a sophisticated foreign cyber attack of the state's judicial branch. Attorney Tyler Gerritsen told Fox 4KC it's not just criminal case information that could have been taken. All of that information that you provide when you get married, that information is contained within that information management system. Every divorce case, um, every document filed within that divorce case. A specific type of cyber attack called ransomware attacks in which cyber criminals demand money have been increasing specifically on schools, hospitals, and municipalities. Ransomware is costing the global economy $8.7 trillion a year. That was the figure for last year for 2022, $8.7 trillion. At a recent discussion with the Council on Foreign Relations, Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech, Ann Neuberger, noted the disruption on top of the costs. We've had in this country alone, we've had hospitals turn away ambulances for days because of disruptions of their electronic medical records. We've had critical manufacturing lines disrupted. Clorox announced a recent significant cost to operations, as well as, of course, schools, 
in various states. She noted that larger critical infrastructure might not be experiencing what hospital schools and other smaller agencies are right now. There was a big critical infrastructure attack in May of 2021 on Colonial Pipeline, after which President Biden said he'd asked Russia's President Vladimir Putin how he would feel if a ransomware attack took out pipelines in your oil fields. Colonial's lines carry oil and jet fuel from Houston to the southeast. President Putin pointed to the activity and said, this is criminal. It's criminal activity. Let's have our law enforcement talk about it. And the president's response was, well, we've signed up to a set of international norms, which are countries do not disrupt critical infrastructure in those other countries. And whether it's a whether it's your government or whether it's a criminal operating out of your country, if it's operating out of your country, you're accountable for that. As for the increasing attacks right now, whether you run a hospital or just like to post details on social media, we should all probably be more careful online. So it used to be that people a long time ago would take a gun and stick somebody up and steal their wallet. Michael Bilboni once served as Deputy Public Safety Secretary for the state of New York and is now the President and Managing Director of Redland Strategies. And that, of course, then morphed into a lot of other things like financial crimes, you know, whether it was insurance fraud. And this has really been an evolution when it comes to crime, because financial crimes were easier than physical crimes in terms of uh, risk and in terms of getting caught. Well, this has now evolved to cyber. Cyber is ubiquitous. It doesn't take a lot of money to get set up. Matter of fact, if you go on a dark web, you can actually find programs. Malware as a service. And the challenge there is that anybody can do this. Obviously, the international actors, especially if you're state sponsored, like you know, we know that the, the nation of China has a whole unit that is devoted to hacking, as does Russia. So we right. know that this is big business for them. I was reading the Justice Department unveiled indictments against nine Russians in September. For ransomware attacks using a variant of something called TrickBot malware, I wonder if that's what you're referring to when you talk about, you know, that you can go on the dark web and just find this that easily. I know TrickBot was taken down, but are most of these attacks then coming from Russia with Russians using something like TrickBot or a variant of it? It's from all over the world. You have some Southeast Asia. Matter of fact, there is... um... When I used to work for the, uh, I was a trustee in the New York Power Authority, we would set up in the Security Operations Center a uh, flow chart that would give you where the attacks were coming from into the United mm-hmm. States. And they would almost predominantly come from the Southeast Asia, Russia, China area. So mm-hmm. that that's where a lot of these are launched. But in terms of the platforms that they use, uh, I see there are kind of three different groups. One is the individual actor who just, you know, this includes, by the way, high school kids, you know, uh, and these are kids. Then there is the group that are the professional criminals who create these networks and these different attacks. And then, of course, you have the nation state sponsored attacks themselves. Mm. And what we've seen, by the way, is we saw when Russia engaged in the Ukrainian war, they perpetrated a, a massive cyber attack on the Ukrainian cyber assets. And so we've also seen that now uh, Iran has also gotten into this and what we, this is a part of the, the warfare itself. But there are groups that have been out there that the attacks you're talking about against hospitals and municipalities, they tend to be more organized criminally and mm. they're looking for money. 
Ann Neuberger, the, the deputy NSA for, for cyber and emerging tech, she was asked recently about all of these attacks, noting specifically that we haven't seen attacks on critical infrastructure like we have on the, the hospitals and the schools and whatnot. And she was saying that, that we had, like previously with the colonial pipeline attack, we had no rules or laws that said you needed to have some cybersecurity in place. And only now are we rolling out regulations. I guess like pipelines, like colonial will, will go to TSA. She said the effort to, you know, protect hospitals is underway through HHS. This is only newly being addressed. So prior to this, what you essentially had, if you went to the Library of Congress and you tried to find a book on on what the laws were in securing your cyber network, there wasn't any. It predominantly was done through regulations, the SEC, uh, the FTC, uh, HIPAA, um, as it relates right. to CMS. They medical all records. Medical records, right. They all had rules and regulations as to what you had to comply with, but the seminal standard by which you could assure that your network is as safe as possible is what's known as the NIST standard, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. And But this is an advisory standard. It's not something that if you don't comply with, you get fined or if you have a problem. Of course, if you do lose, like say you're a bank and you lose people's money, you can be sued by those depositors. And the they will cite the fact that you didn't comply with the NIST standards as mm. a, a sign of liability. So there are standards out there, but it has not been wow. adopted broadly. And as you pointed out, you know, the the as each of these new attacks come, particularly as it relates to critical infrastructure, the federal government is going to say, nope, you, you have to protect these things. In the case of, of Kansas and their court system, you know, it's been five weeks now since their system went down. What could be taking so long to to get back up? And does that signal to us that an attack on something even more important like critical infrastructure could mean that a system is down for a while? So I've gotten a chance to run breach response in several different instances. And what you realize is that, first of all, there is no flag that goes up and says you're under attack. Many times what happens is it takes a while to understand that you have compromised networks and compromised systems. You suddenly, it's a latency in, in terms of operations or you know, uh, some some people notice that there's data missing or they have um, data fields mm. that, that now suddenly are, are not appearing where they should be appearing and those people moving them around. That is a part of the challenge. You don't necessarily know when the event begins. But once the event begins, particularly for a municipality or a government agency, you have to decide, so how do you take things offline? How do you not disrupt, particularly if it's a municipality that, that operates a police department or a hospital? You know, how do you take these networks offline without hurting people, without providing a detriment to what the, the, they normally get from government? And then the same is true for the back end. You know, one of the things that the bad guys will do is they'll go in there and they will insert malware that will lie dormant in the networks. And as soon as you try to restore that network, the malware will come back up. And, and, and doesn't, does, it pro doesn't it ask you, doesn't it say, give us... Bitcoin or give us some sort of crypto token well, or, or we're well, that, that's shutting you down. Ransom. But that's yeah. the ransom. But, you know, and, and if you even if you do pay it, they can still be in your network. Sure. And therefore, you know, the safe and secure restoration is, is a real problem, especially if you haven't protected your backup data. which a lot of people don't do, you know, backup restoration from backup is not a simple thing because you got to make sure that it is untainted and uncorrupted. So it will it will take time, especially if you're dealing with 
personally identifiable information. If you're dealing with health records, if you're dealing with like, the case in Kansas, you had the uh, domestic relations, right? You had the orders of protection. Well, you yeah. don't want that information, the address of, of a victim to go out so that it can be sold on the dark web, which typically is what happens with that sensitive data. Earlier this year, the Minneapolis public schools, they refused to pay a ransom in a ransomware attack. And all the student information ended up online, including like stories from students who were telling counselors about abuse and trauma and bedwetting they'd experience. You know, when a hacker sells this data, who's buying it? Where's it getting posted to the point where to the point where it comes full circle, where you're reading about your own self, you know, online yes. somewhere? So I recently have had some instructions on what happens in the dark web and uh, it is truly frightening to see the kind of things that are on the dark web. It's the most debased, most perverse, um, you know, everything from hiring a hitman to uh, you know, also getting malware, but but also you know, child pornography. T- terrible, terrible things are resonant on the dark web. And so you, you have criminals and uh, nation state actors who go on those sites that are contained within the dark web, and they will purchase this information. Why would they want to know about a person's you know, uh, r- a criminal record or about their uh, personal history? Well, maybe down the line, they go and they extort the individual. Um, maybe it's something that they sell to uh, periodicals or, or magazines that truck in those types of, of personal stories. It, it's, it's unknown whether or not this is something that uh, um, is the main point and the main focus. But we know this. If you don't pay, you can still have a problem. But then again, the Justice Department says don't pay, particularly for municipalities. They say do right. not pay. You're not authorized to do that. You can't use taxpayer dollars to do that. So there's still a big quandary for municipalities. Well, it sounds like there's this agreement among 50 countries like not to pay ransomware anymore. That was according to Ann Neuberger one week before this international counter ransomware initiative event. Is that, is that that go through? I mean, it sounds like that would be pretty complicated for all these countries to adhere to that. Well, true. And, what, what, and what's the enforcement? You know, so in other words, you do you side with a uh, an accord that basically says we're not going to pay ransomware. And then the country pays ransomware. Then what? What what's the penalty? But the Justice Department so, in the United States has been very clear: don't pay. So, what's the? It sounds like, it sounds like we all have to do a better job of protecting ourselves. Like, you know, the hospitals, municipalities, the schools have to what pay more for cybersecurity? Do do I as an individual have to do more to protect myself, or is it is it kind of too late? Is all this stuff out there? Well, I think that what is really important is that there's you know personal cyber hygiene. Uh, years ago. The FBI warned that people never update their home routers. A home router, who really thinks about that? But that's one of the key things that you can do, especially now with a distributed workforce where you're working from home at least a couple of days a week. That's a, that's a critical step that you can do. The other thing that you have to do is pay attention to what goes on in cyberspace with your information. You know, And everything from phishing attacks... If you just understand that your financial institutions will never ask you to provide financial data or identifying information without contacting you in person, just just not going to happen or sending you a letter. And it's always easy to say to somebody who says, you know, you've been breached. Says, OK, send me a letter with the details and then with a phone number so I can contact you and do mm. it. Do it overnight. You know, so, so in other words, verify the request for information. Yeah. And, you know, it's an added, it's an added step, but 
And in this fast-paced world, oftentimes it's, it's unrealistic to sit there and, and have to pause and take a step. And remember, this is your data. This is the thing that matters to you. So you, you ought to pay attention to what happens with that. Michael Valmoni, President and Managing Director of Redland Strategies. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jalosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. A double amputee Olympic runner granted parole 10 years after shooting his girlfriend through a bathroom door in his South Africa home. Oscar Pistorius is going to be getting out of prison January 5th, 2024, according to the Department of Corrections. Pistorius had been sentenced to 13 years and five months in prison for the 2013 Valentine's Day killing of his girlfriend, model Reva Steenkamp. The 37-year-old, nicknamed the Blade Runner, was at the height of his fame when he shot his girlfriend through the bathroom door in the middle of the night testifying at his murder trial that it was a mistake and he thought she was an intruder. Prosecutors argued Steenkamp fled to the bathroom during a late-night argument. Under South African law, serious offenders can be parole-eligible after serving half of their sentence. As a condition of his parole, Pistorius cannot leave the area of Pretoria where he lives and has to attend a program for anger issues. There's more on this story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Lahren. What's on your mind? Mitt Romney is the textbook definition of a rhino, so it's not the least bit shocking that he declared in a CBS interview he'd vote for a Democrat over Trump or Vivek Ramaswamy. He noted he'd support any of the other Republican presidential candidates, but that a Democrat would be an upgrade over Donald Trump. This harkens back to 2016 and the never-Trump wave of rhinos who vowed to vote for Hillary Clinton or a third party over Trump. Many of these folks ended up sucking up to Trump after he won, only to turn on him once again. Mitt Romney is the ringleader of that pathetic circus. It's not a coincidence Romney isn't seeking re-election. Any support the Utah Dem Republican had has dissipated almost entirely. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The R behind Romney is nothing more than a Halloween costume at this point. So I say this with love. Bye-bye, mittens. You will not be missed. I'm Tommy Lahren, and you can watch my show, Tommy Lahren is Fearless, at Outkick.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.